We're turning to Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. So if you're using one of these uh, black paperback Bibles, that's on page 809, and in the gold Bibles, that's page 550. So why don't you guys go ahead and open that up. Can I also get a little more light up here? Is that all right? Thank you. Please follow along as I read from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28, and it should be on the screen behind me as well. This is God's word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, just reading that makes me aware again of how much we need your word. Because where would we be without that? If that wasn't in the Bible, if that wasn't in the world, how much less hope we would have, how much less comfort, how much less assurance. Father, you know, you know what each of us is going through, and I know a little bit of what we're going through, and there's a lot of hurt in this room, and there's fear in this room, and there's uncertainty in this room, and there's doubt in this room, and we've brought all these things this morning wanting to hear from you. And so thank you that this is you speaking to us. This is your living word. And I pray that you would help us this morning to hear from you. That we would hear what you want to say through what you've already said in scripture. And so please tune our hearts to what you want to say this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now that passage, or parts of that passage, are probably quite familiar to some of you if you've been around church for a while. But if you're just hearing it for the first time, you might have been struck by the sheer confidence of it. Right? Paul says in verse 28, And we know 
that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He says in verse 38, for I am sure that none of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. He has this, this series of rhetorical questions, one after the other, right? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The obvious answer to which is no one. Who shall bring any charge against us? No one. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? No one. What makes Paul so confident as he faces the future? This is the, the final sermon in the series we've called Gifts from the Cross that we started after Easter. We wanted to, we're taking each week just a, a portion of the book of Romans and asking the question, what, what do we have? We who have trusted in Jesus, what do we have because of the cross? Because of what Jesus did for us, what's true of our lives? So in Romans chapter 3, we saw that we who've trusted in Jesus are justified. We've been counted righteous in God's sight, even though we're not righteous with the righteousness of Jesus himself, and we will never be condemned. And in Romans 5, we saw that we've been reconciled to God. We've been, we were once apart from him, separated from him, but now we belong to him. We, we have peace with him. We stand in his grace in his favor. In Romans 6, we saw that we're being sanctified. We're being made holy. So not only has God broken, has, has he taken away from us the penalty for our sins, the punishment of our sins, but he's taken away, he's broken the power of it over us so we can actually live the way he made us to live. And all of this has come into our lives through faith, through trusting in Jesus. And that raises a question. Now, if, if all of this, all these gifts have come into our lives through faith, through us trusting in him, does that mean that all of it can change if I change? Can, can something come into my life which will destroy my faith and break my connection to God, just take away all these gifts from me? So the question is, is the life of faith like a highway? Is it like a road leading to the place where I want to be, but which... I'm responsible for driving, and if I hit a patch of ice, if I hit some wet pavement, if I go off the road, I never make it where I want to be. Or is the life of faith like a roller coaster in which I might go through utter darkness, be turned upside down, be turned backwards, but no, I'm going to arrive where I want to be because I'm harnessed in to the car, okay? Is it like a road or is it like a roller coaster? Is my confidence that these things will always be true of me, is it rooted in my grip on God or in God's grip on me? If we're going to share Paul's confidence, we're going to need to find our security, not in ourselves, not in our faith, not in our holding on to God, but in God's holding on to us. That's what this passage is about. So we're going to see in Romans 8 the basis for our security and three boasts that we can make because of it, okay? So one reason we're safe in God and three responses to that safety. So first, the basis of our security is God's unstoppable purpose to make Christians look like Christ. So look at verse 28 again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we'll get to what his purpose is in, in just a second, but just look at Romans 8.28 as a whole, right? This is an extraordinary promise. If you've been a Christian very long, you have probably turned to Romans 8.28 again and again 
in hard times. But there's a danger that we become so familiar with this that we lose track of what it means in its context, in the verses that are around it. We don't see how verses 29 and 30 reveal what verse 28 is about. Because verse 28 tells us, it tells us that all things work together for the good of those who love God. But what does he mean by good? Does he mean that all things work together to make me healthy and wealthy? Does he mean that all things work together so that in the end, all of my kids will become Christians? Is this a a promise about that? Is this a promise that that your marriage is going to be reconciled? That you're going to be healed? It might be nice if that were the promise, but that's not the promise. The good here is much deeper than that. Because look, look at verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what is the good that all things work together for in our lives. It's what he calls here in verse 29, being conformed to the image of God's Son. And what he calls at the end of verse 30, being glorified, sharing the glory that Jesus has. So Paul says that we are called according to his purpose, and his purpose is to make us look like Jesus, to reshape our lives, to transform us until we, we look like God's perfect Son to conform us to his holiness, to his joy, to his courage, his compassion, his humility, his love, his glory. And that's why we know that God works all things together for our good because God's working everything in our lives for that, to accomplish that. That's our good, okay, to look like Jesus. And Paul wants us to know that that purpose is unstoppable because it's eternal. Not only did that purpose precede our life. It preceded time itself. Paul says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So what does it mean to be foreknown by God? What does it mean to be known before? Well, some people think that what Paul means there is just that God foresaw something about us, that God saw, looking ahead into time, that we would trust in Jesus. He foresaw our faith and then predestined us to get what faith brings. But if we were going to believe anyway, then predestination seems a little redundant. And it doesn't say he foreknew something about us. It says he foreknew us. So what does it mean to be known by God? Well, in, in the Bible, to know someone is, it's, that's relational language, right? To know someone is to, is to have a relationship with them, right? When, when Adam knew his wife, she conceived and bore a son, right? There's a place in Genesis 18 where where God says of Abraham, for I have chosen him. But the word for chosen is the word known. I have known him. I chose him for a relationship with me. When Paul says that God foreknew us, it means that before the world was made, he set his love upon us. He chose us for a relationship with him. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. It's why in verse 33 he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect, his chosen people? So having known us, having chosen us, it says that he 
predestined us. He set the whole course of our life to arrive at the destination he wants for us, which is to look like Jesus, which is to bear the image of his son. And he says in verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Which means there was a moment in time, if you're a Christian, there was a moment in time when God, having already loved you, having already known you, he called you. He spoke to you. This is what uh, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So there was a time, even if you don't remember it, even if you weren't fully conscious of it at the time, there was a time when you were hearing the good news about Jesus. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, you were hearing that he died for sinners. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. He rose from the dead to, sh- to show that the payment was accepted in full that we can come home to God through trusting in him. And whether it was the first time or the thousandth time, when you heard it, you, that time you realized, he's speaking to me. I'm hearing his voice. He's saying, I am to come to him. And at that moment, when you heard the call and responded in faith, at that moment, Paul says, he justified you. In that moment, just through trusting in him, he counted you righteous in his sight, forever, utterly forgiven, completely acceptable to him. And this, this is how salvation came to you. God foreknew you. He predestined you. He called you. He justified you. It's the same for every Christian. And notice what didn't happen at any point along the way. Nobody got lost. Nobody dropped out, right? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Nobody got lost. He didn't miss anybody. Everybody came all the way along. At no purpose, at no point, did his purpose fail for even one person. So what does that mean? Well, if you're a Christian, I want you to see see all that God has done to bring you this far, right? All through those things. He hasn't lost a single person. There's only one destination to go, right? He says, and those whom he justified... He also glorified. Do you think that God, having brought you this far, is going to fail to close the deal? Do you think he, he destined you for this before the beginning of time, and at the end, he's just going to flub it and, and forget about you or drop you or let go of you? Does God give up on his projects? Does he give up on his children? Or What, what does Jesus say back in John 10? He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So does Jesus want you to feel uncertain about your eternal destination? Does he want you to worry that some circumstance could just come along and just sweep you out of his hand, just sweep away your faith. He says, they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You are secure in God. Notice at the end of verse 30, what he doesn't say, he's talking about something to happen in the future. He doesn't say, and those whom he justified, he will glorify. He could have said that. That's, that is yet to happen, but he says it in the past tense because it's as good as done. It's going to happen for all of us. His purpose is unstoppable. Now listen, I know that predestination is controversial 
and it's complicated and it's confusing. I know it raises massive questions that are good questions, right? It raises questions like, well, if God chooses who will come to him, what about free will? If God chooses who will come to him, why doesn't he choose everybody? And the Bible speaks to those questions, but not here. Here, Paul only brings it up as a comfort. He wants us to know this is how secure you are. God knew you and loved you before a single atom of matter existed. He knew you and he chose you. Not everyone, you. And he planned your whole life to bring you to faith, to bring you to life in him, to bring you to glory. Jesus, friend of sinners, loved me ere I knew him, drew me with his cords of love, tightly bound me to him. He will not lose you. He will make you like Jesus. He will work all things together to help you grow. And when Jesus comes, he will utterly transform you into eternal perfection. Now, I said that God will do that for you, but who's, who's you? Who is, who is Paul talking about? He calls the same group of people by two different names in verse 28. He says, on the one hand, it's those who are called according to his purpose. And we've been talking about what it means to be called for the purpose. But the other thing he calls these people is he says, it's, it's for those who love God. And this warns us against a dangerous misunderstanding of what Paul is teaching here. Because some people could read this and think, well, if it's, if it's absolutely secure, then nothing is stopping me from just living however I want to live. If, if, I, if I have trusted in Jesus, then I'm, I'm eternal secure, which means I can do whatever I want. And I can know that everything will be forgiven. Wrong. The, the sign of being called according to his purpose is loving God. It doesn't matter if you prayed a prayer at some point or walked an aisle or raised a hand or in some way at some point in the distant past profess that you believe in Jesus, if you have no love for God, then you can't take this promise for yourself. If you have no love for God, it's a sign that you, you maybe never did. And those who are called according to his purpose, they receive new hearts that do love him. And even though our love is weak, even though it ebbs and flows, we do love him. We want to please him. Do you love God? Does he have your heart's loyalty? Even if you often fail, do you want to please him? Then this promise is for you. Now, when I was growing up, I did a fair amount of fishing with my grandfather. And so I, I, I'm from a very flat part of the United States. And so where we were fishing, all the lakes were basically dams. They're created by dams, which meant that the bottoms were super muddy. Okay, so these kind of shallow, muddy lakes, that's where we'd go fishing. And so when we were fishing, we would drop our anchor down into the mud. And for the most part, that was enough to hold us, right? But on really windy days, even if we had two anchors down, mud just doesn't hold, right? Our boat would just be pushed along. Now, when you suffer, you need the anchor of your life not in mud, but in rock. You need the anchor of your life, the anchor of your heart down in something that's not going to give. And the rock you need to anchor in is God's unstoppable purpose to make you look like Jesus. He is absolutely committed to you from eternity past 
to eternity future. He will not give up on you or lose you. He will continue his work until you die or Jesus returns. Now, you wouldn't need Romans 8.28 in your Bible if you never suffered. It's in suffering that we need to know that God is working everything together for our good. And suffering is coming for all of us. But if the anchor of your life is in God's unstoppable purpose, then when you suffer, you can say, this is not an accident. This is not a mistake. This is my God working out his purpose for me. What I'm going through is not good. But God is going to use it for good for me. That's the basis of our security. And then in verse 31, Paul asks, what then shall we say to these things? If those things are true, if Romans 8, 28 to 30 is true, then what can we say? Three boasts, not in ourselves, but in God. And the first one is, God is for me at all times in all things. So look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So what does it mean that God is for us? Well, it means verses 28 to 30. It means that God is working everything together for us to come to look like Jesus. It means that, that when he made the universe, he made it with his people in mind. He made it with you in mind. When he, when he laid the foundations of the world, he did it thinking of your good and your joy and your holiness. God was for me when I was still against him. He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for me. He gave his son over to death so I could become his child. That's how for me he is. Now think about the difference that's going to make when you pray. When you pray, who are you coming to? Are you coming to a skeptic? Someone who kind of has to be won over? Who's someone who's skeptical of all your motives and coming to him? Are you coming to a critic? Someone who's just been keeping track of all the ways you've failed and is eager to bring them up to you? No. You're coming to a father. He welcomes you. You don't need to twist his arm. You can tell him your fears and your sorrows and your needs because he's for you. Think about the difference that makes when you suffer. When you suffer, your fear is going to say, this is because of something I did. I, I've done something and now God has turned against me. Or your enemy, Satan, will whisper to you, see, this proves that God could never love someone as bad as you. Look, he's against you. But if your anchor is all the way down, you can boast, no. God is for me at all times, in all things. God hasn't promised me no cancer, no heartbreak, no job loss, no betrayal. He's promised me that in all those things, he'll work for my good. So this suffering calls nothing into question. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. It doesn't mean he doesn't see. I don't measure his love by my circumstances. I measure his love by the cross. He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for me. How could I doubt him now? That's what you can say to these things. Think of the difference God being for you makes when you face uncertainty. When you're preparing for a, a project that's going to de determine the whole course of your career, right? Or an exam for which you've been studying for six months. 
a decision you have to make, and there's no clear right path, but it's a really important decision, or a treatment that may shrink the tumor or do nothing. When you face uncertainty, you'll have these promises. Romans 8.32 says that if God didn't spare his son, he'll give you all things, which means that nothing he withholds can be for your ultimate good. And Romans 8.28 means that nothing he sends can be for your ultimate bad. So when you face uncertainty, you know the one who holds the outcome is for you. So you can boast, God is for me at all times in all things. That's the first boast. And the second one is, I am utterly safe from condemnation for my sins. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? This boast raises our eyes from the sufferings of life to the end of life. Because at some point, we're going to die, or Jesus is going to come back, and there's going to be a reckoning for our life. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And when we do, Paul says that if, if, if you love God, if you are one of these people, then for you there will be no condemnation. You will be declared not guilty. You will, you will pass through into joy. And if the judge is the one who's justified you, if God has already declared you righteous, then who could condemn you? If the judge says you're fine, who can make any accusation? Now, it doesn't mean we won't be accused, right? Your, your heart will condemn you. You will know that you've not lived as you ought to live. You haven't spoken as you ought to speak. You're not perfect, and your conscience will tell you so. And Satan will certainly accuse you. He'll remind you of all the worst things you've ever done. But when you're accused, you can boast. Every sin you accuse me of may be true. I am a failure, but I am not condemned. And I will never be condemned. Because my hope is not in my performance. My hope is not that my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. My hope is in what he says in verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ died to make full payment for the punishment of my sins. He rose from the dead to show the payment was accepted in full. And now the one who loves me and died for me is in the presence of God interceding for me. Have you ever seen the movie Double Jeopardy? Okay, this was like, this, it came out when I was in high school, so it's been a while, right? So Ashley Judd is sent to prison for killing her husband. And she, she does her time all the, all the while protesting her utter innocence, right? And then she, she gets out of prison and finds that her husband is alive. And he faked his own death and let her take the fall for it. And in the, in the famous scene from that movie, she has him at gunpoint, and he says to her, I, she sa he says to her, you shoot me, and they'll give you the gas chamber, right? You'll, you'll get the death penalty for it. And she says, I could shoot you in the middle of Mardi Gras, and they can't touch me. Why? Double jeopardy, right? She's already paid the punishment for killing her husband, so the fact that now he's alive, if she were to be accused of the same crime twice, they couldn't do anything to her, right? It's double jeopardy. That, I'm, I'm coming around, okay? So when Jesus intercedes for us, when Jesus appears as our advocate before God, what does he do? Is, is he up there in heaven pleading for mercy? 
is he's saying, I know they don't deserve it, but just give them one more chance. Just forgive them one more time. No. He presents his hands and his sides, and he says, what they deserve, the punishment for their crime, has already been paid. The sentence has been done. I did it for them. It would be unjust of you to punish them for a sentence, a crime I've already paid for. It would be double jeopardy. You must let them go free. Now, I, I don't want to imply as, as though Jesus has to convince God to forgive us. After all, God is the one who sent him to die. But you, you get the point, right? We can never be condemned because Jesus eternally reminds the Father that the debt is paid. The sentence was served. Now, the fact that we will never be condemned doesn't mean we, we treat sin lightly. No, we love God. We want not to sin. We want to please him. When we sin, when we fail him, we mourn and we repent, but we do not despair because even then we have a boast in God. I am utterly safe from condemnation for my sins because of Jesus. Finally, third boast, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, in order to really taste the goodness of this promise, you have to remember what it is to be loved by Christ. So if you've read the Gospels, just think about the Gospels and think about how they reveal what his love is like. To be loved by Christ is to have his compassion when you suffer. It's to have his assurance when you're ashamed. It's to have his forgiveness when you fail. It's to have his power when you're in danger. Those, who, those whom Jesus loves are safe in the storm. Those whom Jesus loves are raised from the dead. Those whom Jesus loves can call God their father. The love of Christ is a greater treasure than our career, than our family, than our health, than our financial security, than anything the world offers. And those who love God and are called according to his purpose can never lose that love. It can never be taken from them, not by suffering or persecution, not by supernatural powers, not by anything in the future, not by death. I can't even, I can't even separate myself from the love of God, right? Not even I in creation. I'm part of creation. I can't separate myself from the love of God. I can't wriggle out of his hand. And that makes us, verse 37, more than conquerors. Not because of anything we've done, but more than conquerors through him, who loved us. Not only can nothing separate us from his love, but everything we experience will only drive us deeper into his love and make us more like him. We're more than conquerors. Now, do you see how different our lives will be when we anchor ourselves all the way down into the unstoppable purpose of God? If your anchor is in anything else, it can be swept away. If, if what gives you joy and purpose in life is your job, you can lose it. If it's in your kids, they can rebel. If it's in your health, 
You can get sick, but if you belong to God, his commitment to you never fails. It never wavers. It never changes. It never gives way. God chose us before the world was made to look like Jesus, to be utterly free from sin and conform to the beauty and glory of his son. And he orders the entire universe to bring us along to that destination. Nothing he gives can ultimately be bad for us and nothing he withholds can be ultimately good. Think how differently we'll suffer if we have this in our minds and hearts. We won't pretend our suffering doesn't hurt. We won't pretend that in itself it's good. It's not good. But we'll have peace knowing that it comes through the hands of a father who is shaping us after the image of Christ and that it cannot take away our confidence that God is for us, that he will never condemn us, and that his love for us will never fail. Suffering is coming. And if your confidence is not in God's grip on you, if your confidence is in your grip on God, then when it comes, you're going to worry, can I handle this? Can I hang on? But if your confidence is in God, then you can say what the hymn writer says, the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. That's what you can say if you love God and have been called according to his purpose. Have you been called? Maybe he's calling you now. If you want to know that God is for you, see that he has given his son for sinners and trust him for perfect righteousness and unfailing love. Let's pray. Father, I have this, this picture in my mind of how the truth of this passage is like a cave we can crawl into and take refuge. That though storms assail on the outside and the wind blows and the rocks fall, that inside of your promise, inside of your care, we are safe and warm. And I pray, Father, that you would help us as your people to take refuge in the truth of this passage, take refuge in your being for us, take refuge in your love never being taken away from us, take, take refuge in your utter sovereignty working all things together for our good, that you would help us to live there and rejoice there. And I know, Father, I know that there are people this morning going through something who are in desperate need for this to be true. And I pray that you would help them to hold it, that it would, it would transform their mind and hearts and that they would take refuge in you through this that they're going through. Father, please help us to be a people of unshakable hope because our lives are anchored in you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.